7. I'm going to call uh, Marshall and Cheryl Slot to come up here just for a moment, if you could. Yeah, you can just stand right here. Thank you. Um, Marshall is running for Fort Bend County Sheriff. By the way, I just figured out you have the perfect first name for that for that, for that job. Um, he is going to be um, our speaker at our men's breakfast February the 17th. Now, as a church, we can't endorse candidates, but we are within our rights to make you aware of what candidates are out there, particularly locally. Um, He is a believer, a husband, a father, and a grandfather. You guys don't look old enough to be grandparents, too. Wow. And he has been in uh, law enforcement for three decades, 24 years protecting and serving as a member of the Fort Bend County Law Enforcement. And he's also a deacon at Grace Family Baptist Church. And he is uh, going to be our men's speaker Saturday, February the 17th. Um, we've invited him just to kind of be in the foyer to answer any questions you might have of him. You can actually probably challenge him. He won't take offense to that. Absolutely. And, um, you know, of course, being uh, running for county sheriff, that's a, that's a big deal. That's law enforcement in our area. And he's here just to be prayed for. He's here to be encouraged. And if you have any questions for him, you might want to let him, if he's going to go through the lunch line, you might want to let him eat first. <laughs> but just to, uh, you know, just to see who's running for office, particularly very important local um, positions. And I'm just going to lay hands on him for just a moment and pray for him. So let's do that. Uh, let me stand behind you. I'm kind of tall. Yeah, I think they can. So, Lord, we just lift up Marshall. We lift up his wife, Cheryl. We know that this is um, a team effort, husband and wife. He's He stepped out and he wants to serve you in the ordinance of human government. You have ordained government. We know that government and law enforcement is very important to the outworking of your purposes and Whatever you're going to do with his life in the upcoming election, I just pray for your perfect will to be accomplished. I pray for their uh, edification, their encouragement. I thank you that they're willing to put themselves in a place of vulnerability and step out and be used by you. And I just want to pray for their protection, their covering, and the perfect will be executed in their lives. And we lift all of these things up in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's give him a round of applause. But don't leave yet. There's more. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. We are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. And if you look carefully on the screen there, you'll see the outline that we've been following. And it's kind of exciting because 
we don't have Jacob highlighted anymore, but now we're into the Joseph story. Don't worry, Jacob hasn't died. He's part of the story. He's just not the main character in the story. And we are now in Genesis chapter 37 through the end of the book, chapter 50. Take a look, if you could, at chapter 37 and verse 1. And by the way, the title of our message this morning is The World's Hatred for the Believer. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. So Esau and the Edomites have sort of dropped off the radar screen. They have settled not in Canaan, but in an area um, called Mount Seir, just to the south of the Dead Sea. And now the storyline focuses exclusively on Jacob's dozen. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And the specific son that's mentioned here that is the focus of chapters 37 through 50 is this man, Joseph. Why is the Joseph story even in the Bible at all? Well, the name of the game here is not to get the nation of Israel birthed. That already happened. That happened through the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The nation of Israel is born. Now the name of the game is how are we going to get the nation of Israel preserved? Because when we get to chapter 38, you're going to see some crazy things there demonstrating the corruption of the Canaanite society and how the nation of Israel would have been just like the Canaanites had God left them in Canaan. The Canaanites were a very wicked group of people. And let that be a lesson to you. Uh, Bad company, Paul tells us, in 1 Corinthians 15, I want to say around verse 33, corrupts good morals. We have to be very careful about who we enter into friendships with, personal relationships with. This is particularly important in the area of those contemplating marriage because we can charge into these relationships. It can even be a a business partnership of some kind, thinking that we're going to somehow change the person. But the Bible warns us over and over again, be careful about that for the believer because that person might end up changing you. That is the situation here related to Canaan and the nation of Israel. And it is God's purpose to get Israel out of Canaan to be incubated in a place called Goshen in Egypt for about 400 years. That's actually a prophecy that God gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, verse 13 and verse 16. You're going to be a sojourner in a foreign land for 400 years. And then I'll bring you out of that land with great possessions. There is going to be a famine in Canaan that's coming. And God, Genesis 46, also is going to have to protect his special nation 
from famine. So protecting them from famine and protecting them from uh, internal moral corruption involved God removing the nation of Israel out of Canaan into Egypt for 400 years. Who is the instrument that God is going to use to do this great feat? A 17-year-old who won't even know what's going on in his life till about age 30, named Joseph. Uh, These other men on the screen, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were used to birth Israel. Joseph's purpose in coming into the world is to protect and preserve Israel. Simeon and Levi, you'll remember, overreacted to what happened, and they executed vigilante justice, Genesis 34. So now the name of Israel was sort of odious amongst the Canaanites. You throw into the mix Genesis 38, which we'll be studying, and you throw into the mix this famine that's coming. And you see why it was God's purpose to get his people out of Canaan for a a period of time. Beyond that, God's glory was at stake because he is going to do the greatest thing he's ever done. Other than creation and other than the cross and resurrection of Jesus in an event called the Exodus. The Exodus is the greatest redemptive event in world history other than the cross of Christ. And in the Exodus event, God will receive all of the glory. But it involves a nation in captivity. God can't release them from captivity unless they are in Egyptian captivity. So all of these factors I'm trying to describe show you why the Lord began to work with this 17-year-old named Joseph. He is the instrument that God is going to use to deport his nation down south into Egypt for a season. After that season, according to prophecy, they'll come out with many possessions. They'll ultimately take the Canaanites in conquest as described in the book of Joshua. But you can't have a conquest unless the nation is out of Canaan. And when God seeks to do a work, he chooses a man or a person. God works through people. And he's going to work now through this 17-year-old named Joseph. And this is what the Joseph story, it spans about 14 chapters in your Bible, chapters 37 through 50. That's what it's doing in your Bible. And here we're just at the beginning of the Joseph story, Genesis 37. Genesis 37 is, is going to involve four things. Number one, a coat of many colors, verses 2 through 4. Number two, dreams, plural. Joseph is going to be given two dreams revealing his destiny by God, verses 5 through 11. Well, why just, why not just one dream? Why two? Well, there's an ancient principle in scripture that let a matter be confirmed by what? Two to three witnesses. Joseph gets two dreams describing his life. The third thing that happens is the pit, (laughs) where his brothers are really not going to be very happy about Joseph's dreams. They're going to give him the nickname, the dreamer. Verses 12 through 14, excuse me, 12 through 24, 
And then the chapter will end with Joseph's enslavement, chapters 25 through 36. A lot of people believe that slavery, as horrible as it was, is something that the United States of America invented. In fact, there's a senator on the Senate floor that said that a couple years back. I wasn't quite sure I was hearing it with my own ears. The truth of the matter is slavery has been all over the world. Every group has been subjugated and enslaved by another group. As wrong as it is, and you actually see slavery happening right here in your Bible. As Joseph, a Jew, is sold into Egypt, into slavery. And yet, this is exactly where God wanted him. Because God is going to work providentially to elevate Joseph to second in command in Egypt. Of course, as a 17-year-old, you don't know anything about that. All you know is the sufferings that you're in. And it's sort of a, an encouraging thing to us because a lot of us are thrown into circumstances and we're saying, why, Lord? And the Lord is saying to us, just trust me. Because following Genesis 37 ultimately would be Genesis 50, where Joseph would say, or it would be said, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. But it took the perspective of a post-30-year-old to understand all of that. Hindsight is 20-20. When things are happening to you, you don't really have time or the ability to put the pieces together. And yet Joseph kept trusting in the Lord through all of it. And he becomes a tremendous role model that a lot of us, as we're thrown into strange circumstances, we don't understand. God is saying, I don't want you to understand right now. I want you to keep trusting me with the understanding that all things work together for good to those that are called by God and are of God and are called according to his purpose. By the way, the Bible doesn't say all things are good. That's a common misquote of the Bible. The Bible never says all things are good. Bad things happen to good people. What it says at the end of Romans 8 is God uses all things together for good for his ultimate purpose. He's doing that in our lives, and that's what he's doing here with Joseph. So notice, first of all, the coat. Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 through 4. The first thing you see is Joseph's tablet. In fact, let me just read all of verse 2. It says, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock, which his his brothers, while he was, uh, excuse me, with his brothers, while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. First of all, notice Joseph's tablet. It says there in verse 2, these are the records of the generations of Joseph. As we've tried to explain in prior studies, the Hebrew word for records or generations is the Hebrew word toledot. And essentially what it means is a written record of some kind. 
Um, and as you see that expression, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, throughout the book of Genesis, it's an easy way to sort of outline the book of Genesis. It's a combination of a series of Toledot written records, we believe compiled by the eyewitnesses of these events, ultimately landing in the hands of Moses, who, as you know from the book of Exodus, was set adrift on the Nile. Providentially, he, through that, was reared in the household of Pharaoh's daughter. And in in so doing, given a tremendous education. If Moses in Egypt had just stayed a common slave and never was reared in the household of the Pharaoh, he would not have had the education and the literary ability to compile the book of Genesis the way he has. And in essence, what happened is Jacob, when he finally leaves Canaan, Genesis 46, because of a famine, God at that point, having so providentially worked in Joseph's life that Joseph was now second in command over all of Egypt, Jacob understands that. He comes from Canaan to Egypt, and he brought with him, we believe, all of these written records. The first Toledot is the introduction to the generations. The second one is the, the generations of the heavens and the earth. The third one is the generations of Adam, likely written by Adam himself. The fourth one is the generations of Noah, written by Noah. The, 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 the fifth one is the generations of Noah's sons, written by one of Noah's sons, probably Shem. Then came the generations of Shem, then came the generations of Terah, Abram's father, and then came the generations of Ishmael, and then came the generations of Isaac, the generations of Esau, and then finally we're we're running into our final Toledot in the book of Genesis, the generations of Jacob. All of these records compiled by eyewitnesses passed down through the family line. All of these things end up in the hands of Jacob, Jacob, when he leaves Canaan and goes to Egypt, takes those written records with him. They end up in the hands of a man named Moses, a man in whose life God had providentially worked, giving him the greatest education of his time period. And Moses takes all of these records and compiles them into what we call the book of Genesis. So Moses received the book of Genesis very differently than John on the island of Patmos received the book of Revelation. John received a singular vision and he wrote it down. Not so Moses. He never received a vision on par with what John received. He received records. And yet the Holy Spirit was at work as Moses put all of this material together for us in what we call the book of Genesis. By the way, the gospel of Luke came into existence the exact same way. Luke was not uh, one of the original 12. So how could Luke, not one of the original 12 disciples, write a gospel about Jesus? Well, he interviewed people. And he was very careful because what was his occupation? He was a physician. 
Physicians by nature are careful. If you have a physician that's not careful, you might want to think about getting a new physician. But Luke took all of that material and he put it together in what we call Luke's gospel. It's just that the Holy Spirit strategically used Luke in the process, just like the Holy Spirit strategically used Moses in the process. Luke tells you this at the beginning of his gospel. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. Luke interviewed eyewitnesses. He probably interviewed Mary, Jesus' mother. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Luke says, I'm not the first guy to write about Jesus. Others have. I'm just taking all of these accounts and eyewitness testimony, and I need to do that because I wasn't one of the original 12, and I'm just going to put it together for this man, Theophilus. Theophilus, by the way, means lover of God. (laughs) Theophilus was pursuing the things of God. I I want to be like that. I want to be a lover of God, pursuing the things that God loves. Luke put it all together skillfully and presented it to Theophilus. That's exactly how the book of Genesis that we're studying came into existence. I have to mention it because it does mention the word toledot here, and this is the last time it mentions toledot. These are the records of. So this is the last time you'll have to hear that familiar speech. Unless you go back in archives and and watch it. So we have Joseph's tablet. Jacob's tablet, really, but the story of Joseph completes the Jacob story. Joseph is on the scene not to give birth to Israel, but he's going to be used by God to preserve Israel. It's kind of interesting that not all Christians do the same thing. Have you noticed that? God equips us differently for different tasks. And my task might not be your task, and your task might not be my task, but we're all under the same headship of Jesus Christ, working for the same master. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their task was birth of a nation. Joseph's task was the preservation of a nation. And then you go down to verse 2, second part of verse 2, and you see his relationship with his brothers. It says there, Joseph was 17 years of age. So a little bit about his relationship with his brothers. First of all, his age. He's 17. Circumstances are going to totally overwhelm him. And he's not even going to be able to put the pieces of his life together until age 30. And again, not to be redundant, but this is so good for us to read things like this. Because as I said before, we get thrown into circumstances that we don't understand. And Joseph becomes sort of a role model for us. You'll notice also Joseph's work. He was pasturing the flock. Uh, He was functioning just as a simple shepherd. Uh, 
He wasn't trying to get the next promotion. (laughs) He wasn't trying to get the next pay raise. He was just doing what God had put in front of him, pasturing. I, I find it interesting how many of God's most elect choice leaders were originally shepherds. One of them is Moses himself. You'll see that he was merely shepherding the sheep when God called him to deliver Israel. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. I'm also thinking of David. In fact, when Jesse came to anoint the next king, uh, David's father, Samuel rather, came to anoint the next king. David's father, Jesse, didn't even bring David out because he's just a shepherd. I mean... You're talking about a king here. First Samuel 16, verse 11, it says, So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And lo and behold, this kid tending the sheep was destined to become the second king of the united kingdom there's a there's a principle in the scripture that we should all take into account particularly as we move into the new year it's in luke 16 verse 10 and what it says is he who is faithful with a little thing can be trusted with the big thing Luke 16, verse 10 says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Remember the sheep and goat judgment, Matthew 25, 21. Remember what Jesus will say there, the parable of the talents. You have been faithful with a few things, Matthew twenty-five twenty-one. I will put you in charge of many things. Matthew twenty-five twenty-three. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And this is how God works. God promotes people on the basis of their ability to be faithful with something simple. Because if you can't be faithful to God on a small stage, how in the world could you ever be faithful to God on a big stage? Joseph was moving to a big stage. When it's all said and done, he's going to be the number two guy over the world empire of the time, Egypt. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons God started to work this way in Joseph's life, because he was faithful with doing whatever it is God put in front of him, Probably toiling away in anonymity. No glamour, no pats on the back, no recognition, just faithfulness. And God says, that's the kind of person I promote. By the way, isn't that how it works with elders and deacons in a local church? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? 1 Timothy 3, 5-7, it says, If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And by the way, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. God promotes people in his church because they're faithful on a smaller stage. They're family. 
their relationship with the outside world before he promotes them within his church. Joseph is just doing this simple little thing in front of him. And if you find yourself today in a position of anonymity, a job that you're in that maybe is beneath your abilities, you should take heart in that because God is testing you. And he's seeing, are you, are you going to be faithful there? Because if you're faithful there, I can promote you over here. Which is what God was seeking to do with Joseph. Faithful with the little things. We also have here his associations. Not only was he pastoring the flock, but he was with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Here is the family tree, as we have studied. Jacob's dozen, born in Haran up north, the only one of Jacob's twelve born in the land of Israel was Benjamin. But this is where the different brothers came from who became the twelve tribes many coming from Leah, two coming from Zilpah, two coming from Rachel, and two more coming from Bilhah. So that's where Joseph was. He was with his brothers. He was tending the sheep before his whole life changed. And you see his actions there at the end of verse 2. Joseph brought back a bad report to them, to their father. Uh Uh-oh. A lot of people look at that and say, well, he was kind of a tattletale. But I don't really think that's true. I just think he was an honest young man. And when his brothers stepped out of line, which apparently they have a real propensity for doing, I mean, they're about ready to leave him dead. (laughs) Um... He had a tendency to report that back to the father. The father would listen to Joseph. Why is the father, Jacob, listening to Joseph? Well, perhaps in Jacob's mind, although Joseph was the 11th born, he was actually the firstborn because his wife that he wanted, you remember from the story, was Rachel. And through Rachel came the firstborn from Rachel, Joseph. And so there is probably a little bit of favoritism happening here. But all of this kind of sets the pretext for why these brothers were jealous of Joseph and hated Joseph uh, so much. And the problem is compounded when you look at his associations, his actions, And then you have Jacob's elevation of Joseph. You see that described there in verse 3. It says, now Israel, now remember, Israel was the name of who? Jacob. So Israel and Jacob are used as synonyms. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. So there's a couple reasons why Joseph seemed to receive some preferential treatment. He was the firstborn, the 11th born total, but the firstborn of his originally desired wife, Rachel. And if that weren't enough, Jacob or Israel gives Joseph a special garment. 
that the others didn't receive. Verse 3, second part of the verse. He made him a multicolored, very colored tunic. Now, this is interesting because this coat of many colors has a tradition in what's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it actually is sourced in other political powers of the time. Rulers did this to those that they showed favor or grace to. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, a coat of royalty. The tradition of many colors is based on the Septuagint, which reads a multicolored frock, a reading followed by the Latin Vulgate, that's the Latin translation of the Greek text, about 400 A.D. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says the tombs of Beni Hassan in Egypt, dating back to the patriarchal age, have pictorials, pictures in other words, that show Semitic chiefs and the family of Jacob was Semitic. And these families, they wore coats of many colors, an insignia of rulership. Therefore, it was a well-known sign that Jacob appointed Joseph the leader of the clan. So he's the 11th born, and he's actually being treated here as the firstborn. And he receives this uh, right of the firstborn, this uh, very, very special coat, the coat of many colors. One of the things that I've discovered that's very interesting is when you read those words, coat of many colors in Greek, James in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, uses the same word to describe the many kinds of varieties of trials that Christians fall into. James, you remember, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, says, Consider it pure joy, my brethren. When you encounter various, that's the same word multicolored, various trials. I don't know about you, but when I hit a trial, it's not always joyful to me. But James says, consider it all joy. Because these trials, these tribulations that we go through are multicolored. In other words, God doesn't just send one trial into your life. He sends multiple trials into your life because it's sort of like sandpaper. There's a lot of sanding to do. And sometimes God is sanding over here on my character. Sometimes He's sanding over there on my character. Sometimes it's an issue of being quick-tempered. So God sends a trial into my life to deal with that part of my character. Sometimes it's impatience. God, give me patience and give it to me right now, we ask sometimes. And God says, okay, you want patience? Here's another... Sandpaper experience for you. And it's a totally different trial, totally different set of circumstances, and yet it's all there by the design of God to conform us and transform us into the image of His Son. He doesn't say all things are good. He says He uses all things together for good, for His ultimate purpose of having us, at the end of the day, being Christ-like. Not becoming sinless, but hopefully in our growth in Christ, we're sinning less. 
And nothing is greater to God in terms of a tool to use for that endeavor than him providentially and sovereignly allowing different different things to come into your life. So as you're, you're facing something, no doubt, in the year 2024, you have to understand that that has been sifted already through the providence of God. And it is in your life not to make you bitter, but to make you better. And you can't control what comes into your life through God's sovereign hand. The only thing you can control is your reaction to it. There have been times in my life where I've reacted wonderfully to trials and grown exponentially. And there are other times in my life where I have reacted completely the wrong way. And God says, okay, let's take another lap. And he'll send me sometimes different circumstances, different people through the same kind of thing. Don't don't resist it. Don't don't get mad at God because He did that to you. See it as part of His love. Whom, whom the Lord loves, the Lord disciplines. Hebrews chapter twelve, verses five through eleven. So Joseph received this special coat, and you see the reaction of his brothers there in verse four. Says his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the others, and so they hated him. Rest of verse four says, and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. Hate is a very strong word, very strong emotion. When Joseph is given this special coat and he's treated like the firstborn, When he was really the 11th born, the rest of the brothers were not happy about it at all, and they hated him. Now watch this. Joseph is hated because he had the favor of his father. Now I'm here to tell you, Christian brother and sister in Christ Jesus, that that is exactly how the world will react against you. You have the favor of your father who is in heaven. And the world is not going to sit around and say, yay! What you're going to find is a natural sort of hostility that will come against you. Jesus talked about this in the upper room. In John 15, verses 18 and 19, he said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. In other words, don't take it personally. Long before they hated you, they hated me. If you were of the world. Now what is the world? It's the cosmos. It's the philosophy of the day that we're living in under Satan's authority. Satan is the ruler of this world that doesn't change until Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom. But until then, we're living on enemy soil. We're living in a philosophy of the age that goes counter to God's word constantly. And if you walk according to the philosophy of the age, the world will appreciate you, respect you. If you start to live a life that's contrary to the spirit of the age, the world reacts against you. That's just how it is. Jesus said to these disciples, and keep in mind when he's saying this, he's talking to 11 men. Judas has already left the room upper room, that are about to go out and every single one of them is going to die of unnatural causes. They're going to be martyred. 
The only exception to that will be John, who they tried to kill but couldn't. They kept trying to boil John in oil. And that guy was very stubborn. He just wouldn't die. So they took him and they flung him out. This is what Emperor Domitian did to people. He, they, they flung him out onto this island there off the coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, called Patmos. And yet that was God's place for John because there he would receive which New Testament book? The book of Revelation. So that's who Jesus is talking to when he makes this statement. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now, I underlined here in my English translation the word hate in John 15 verses 18 and 19 four times. That's why I've entitled this message, The World's Hatred for the Believer. It's a difficult pill to swallow, but it's the truth. You can have people hating you, and you can be sweet as as pie to folks. But because you belong to Jesus, not because you're obnoxious. Now, if you're obnoxious, you probably deserve what you get. I'm not talking about obnoxious people. What I'm talking about is people that love the Bible, they love Jesus Christ, they love His church, they love their relationship with the Holy Spirit, and they take that into the workplace. They take that into the voting booth. They take that even into their own assembly. As you do that, don't expect the world to applaud. Because you are favored by the Father, the world will naturally hate you. Just like Jacob favoring Joseph brought natural hate amongst his brothers against Joseph. And hate, let me tell you something about hate. It's an issue of the heart. And it's dangerous. Because hate leads to actions. What you see in terms of hate here is going to amplify into attempted murder in this chapter. That's what hate does. Uh, This is why the Bible says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, lest you give the devil a foothold. The book of Proverbs, chapter 4 And verse 23 in the New King James Version says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it, out of what? The heart. Out of it spring the issues of life. You know, I can remember back to different murder trials. I'll just put one out there, O.J. Simpson. Beautiful, superstar, athlete, talented, loved by everyone, but because he didn't get anger under control. He committed an act that he did, double homicide, whatever it was, and his whole life changed. And I'm wondering, as he had different Christian pastors during that time period, I think Rosie Greer, if that's the name is right, 
was one of his pastors. I'm just wondering if, if in some of those counseling sessions they could have worked together in getting his anger under control. Because if his anger was under control, there wouldn't have been a dual homicide. His life wouldn't have been different. Watch your heart, the book of Proverbs says, with all diligence, for from it springs the issues of life. You know, long before we move into actual physical sin, there are things happening at the heart level. Jesus talked about this, did he not, in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Oh my goodness, my heart has committed sins that my hands haven't gotten around to yet. Boy, I need the grace of God in my life. How about you? How about this one? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see where the Bible is moving? It's moving to the heart. If you want to stop physical adultery, then quit fantasizing about it. If you want to stop murder, then don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be a forgiving person, lest you give the devil a foothold. Probably one of the smartest people that's ever lived was Thomas Jefferson. In fact, there's a famous uh, quote from... John F. Kennedy, and he was in the White House dining area, dining room, having lunch with all of these Nobel laureates and and prize winners. And he said, you know, we haven't had as much brain power in this room since the days of Thomas Jefferson. When Jefferson dined here alone, is what he said. And Thomas Jefferson was an interesting guy, uh, because he had made a study of all of the philosophers. Every philosopher that was known, he studied. And he said, you know, Jesus is different. And this is a quote from Thomas Jefferson. He says, my views are the result of a life of inquiry and reflection and very different from the anti-Christian system imputed to me by those who know nothing of my opinions. To the corruptions of Christianity, I am indeed opposed, but not to the genuine precepts of Jesus himself. I am a Christian in the only sense in which he, that's Jesus, wished anyone to be sincerely attached to his doctrines in preference to all others. His system of morals if filled up in the style and the spirit of rich fragments he left us, would be the most perfect and sublime that has ever been taught by man. His moral doctrines were more pure and perfect than those of the most correct of the philosophers. Gathering all into one family under the bonds of love, charity, peace, common wants, and common aids, 
A development of this head will evidence the peculiar superiority of the system of Jesus over all others. The precepts of philosophy of the Hebrew code laid hold of actions only, but he, that's Jesus, pushed his scrutinies into the heart of man, erected his tribunal in the region of his thoughts, and purified the waters at the fountainhead. Close quote. Jefferson is saying, Jesus is different. Everybody else is focusing on the outside. What we do. Jesus says, look at your heart. Because your heart has committed sins that your hands haven't gotten around to yet. And if you want to keep your hands back from sins, as the book of Proverbs says, watch your heart very carefully because from it will come the issues of life. These brothers are about to commit attempted murder. And the whole thing could have been stopped dead in its tracks had they got hate under control. Yeah, the world is going to throw at us hate, but we don't need to be that way. We don't need to be angry, grudge-holding people. We need to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And if we're not going to be that way, it's going to come out in some unwelcome manner. By the way, no extra charge for this. But this is why our founding fathers wanted the Bible taught in the public schools, because they understood this. They understood if you can get hold of people's hearts, they'll govern themselves. And big government won't be needed. That's why they said things like our Constitution is only acceptable for a moral and religious people. You throw the Ten Commandments out of the schools and the metal detectors will come in. And it's kind of interesting that they go to prisons today and they give these guys Bibles, which is a great thing. We have people in this church involved in that kind of ministry. But I'm always wondering, maybe we should have given them the Bibles when they were little so they wouldn't be in the prison. So these brothers, they hated Jesus. And I'm just going to finish here with the last part of verse 4. They hated Joseph, rather, and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. I mean, their hatred was so astronomical that they couldn't even deal with Joseph on a friendly basis. They they lacked, uh, lacked civility. Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34 said something that I find very convicting. He said, for the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, in other words, the mouth speaks. In other words, the mouth is a window to the heart. If there are things coming out of my mouth, it's simply a reflection of what's happening in my heart already. If my mouth is filled with exhortation, encouragement, blessing, hope, then that's what's happening in my heart. Because the mouth is just a window to the heart. 
If coming out of my mouth is gossip, bitterness, resentfulness, anger, wanting to tear down rather than to build up, then that's what's happening already in my heart. So as we look at 2024 and we start to sort of look at our individual speech patterns, we need to do some introspection concerning things happening in our heart. I mean, Joseph's brothers, they had such a resentment in, in their hearts that came out of their mouths. They, they couldn't even speak of him on civil terms or friendly terms. So that's Joseph's coat, which sets the stage for what's coming. And the jealousy is going to get worse because Joseph is going to get some dreams. Verses 5 through 11. And by the way, those dreams are going to come to pass exactly like God said. It's just going to take about 13 years for it to happen. So when God says something, take it to the bank. It's going to happen. And then this will lead to Joseph's pit, verses 12 through 24, leading to his enslavement into Egypt, a young 17-year-old being sold as a slave down into Egypt. He's probably thinking, Lord, what are you doing in my life? Where are you? And God says, you're right on schedule. You don't understand it, but I do. And you don't need to understand it if you trust my character. I'm here to tell you in your personal life, everything is right on schedule. It's right where it's supposed to be. And we just need to trust the Lord in the new year. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for your truth, grateful for the communion table. We do acknowledge, Lord, that there may be people here that have never uh, trusted um, Christ personally. We would just pray that anyone within the sound of my voice, that today would be the day of salvation for you, that they would understand the gospel, that Jesus did everything in our place to bridge the gap between sinful man and the holiness of God. There's nothing more to be done. You simply want us to receive what you have done as a gift. That's the only term you provide. Receive it as a gift. And yet we know from your word, Lord, Romans 4, 4 and 5, that we can only receive a gift if we receive it by faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith means trust, reliance, dependence. I pray for anyone here, Lord, within the sound of my voice, either in the building, online, watching or listening to archives after the fact, that the Spirit would convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And they might respond to that convicting, persuading ministry by placing their trust for their future for the forgiveness of their sins, for the safekeeping of their soul, exclusively into what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. I do pray, Lord, that people would understand that becoming a Christian is not a 12-step program. 
It's a one-step program. It does not involve New Year's resolutions, trying harder. It doesn't involve money or obligations to give money. It doesn't involve commitments to join a church or become a member of a church. It's just a, a, a matter of personal faith between the individual and God as they put their trust for their future and their eternity and their forgiveness exclusively into Jesus by not just having sort of an intellectual understanding of what he did, but understanding that he did it for us. If we were the only people on planet Earth, you still would have died in our place. We acknowledge it intellectually, but you want more. You want us to rely upon it, trust it, which is a heart issue. I pray that many people, as they come under conviction, would do that. I pray for this church and our teaching in the new year as we continue to move through the book of Genesis together. I pray that we would grow in the grace and admonition of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for many, many salvations. If anyone's here, Lord, and still unclear about their personal salvation, I do pray that they would come and talk to me after the fact as as I'm available. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said.